0: Well, where were you 10 days ago today? You have to stop and think, don't you? Today is April 24th, and so 10 days ago was Thursday, April 14th. I know where I was, at least starting at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I was here along with about 80 of you, and we were doing spring cleaning around church. Do you remember that day? I was struck by the reality that... um, not everyone was working at their church that day. In fact, in, outside of Beijing, China, on Thursday, April 14, 2016, a pastor and his wife stood in front of their church as the communist officials there came to remove a cross. They literally bulldozed down the entire church. The pastor's wife refused to move and was crushed to death. We had no idea as we were spreading mulch openly in our community in front of our church building. This was the headline this morning at Fox News. Let me just read the article for you. It's entitled, Martyr Killed by Bulldozer Becomes a Symbol of Growing Persecution of Christians in China. A Christian woman's fateful and defiant stance in front of a bulldozer last week evoked the memory of Tim and. An Tiananmen Square and has become a rallying cry against persecution at the hands of the Beijing government. The woman, identified by Christian activists as Ding Suimi, and okay, so I don't do Chinese names very well, let's say that up front, wife of the rever- Reverend Lai Jingong was trying to stop the government-ordered demolition of the B2 church in the central Hina province City of Zumadian. Unlike the iconic man who brazenly stopped a tank in the 1989 uprising at Tiananmen Square, Ding was pushed into a ditch and buried alive as horrified congregants watched helplessly. Bury them alive for me, a member of the demolition team said, according to a report by China Aid, a nonprofit focused on human rights and religious freedom in the world's most populous country. I will be responsible for their lives, he went on to say. Bob Fu of China Aid, who, by the way, has been here in our pulpit. He's out of Texas. We need to have Bob back, a good friend of Mike Donnelly. Bob Fu of China Aid said, The government wants to contain the growth of Christianity. This grim incident underscores the Chinese government's increasing persecution of religious minorities, say advocates. Thousands of churches across the country have been demolished in the past year, and dozens of pastors have been arrested on trumped-up corruption charges, according to nonprofit groups that monitor the situation. There was a time when they, the Christians, were being recognized as productive members of society. The government treated them fairly, David Curie, president and CEO of Christian advocacy group Open Doors USA, told FoxNews.com. But that has changed. China has the goal of nationalizing Christians. A little more than 5% of China's 1.4 billion people are believed to be Christians, Curie said that the Chinese government appears determined to lower the profile of the church. Now listen to some of the language of this article. Curie said that the Chinese government appears determined to lower the profile of the church. The effort takes varied forms from... Rezoning church properties to allow for demolition, as in the case of the April 14 incident in which Ding was killed, to forcing pastors to meet weekly with local officials to explain their sermons. It has had a chilling effect on religious freedom in China, Curie said. Government officials are forcing thousands of churches to remove crosses, according to advocates. Of China Aid. Two demolition workers were, the two demolition workers were arrested in the death of Ding. Her husband, who was also pushed into the ditch but managed to crawl out, has allegedly been warned not to discuss the case. The incident underscores the serious violations against religious freedom in China that have occurred since President Xi Jinping took office in 2013, said Bob Fu, president and founder of China Aid. Listen to this line. He has taken a strong ideological turn to create a new cultural direction. I'll just stop there. I think that when I was a little boy and we were praying for the persecuted church behind the Iron Curtain in the former Soviet Union, we never could imagine a day when our religious freedoms might be impaired particularly by our government. I don't think that's so difficult to imagine nowadays, even though we live with significant security, even today. I think with the naturalizing of and secularizing of the average citizen, we recognize the diminishing profile of crosses in our own country. We recognize that there has been a breeze blowing that has the smell of control, of change. Well, we're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew here on an ongoing basis. And last week, we were in chapter 14, where we had that most fascinating account of the martyrdom of John the Baptist. And that just got the pastor's wheels turning, and I just thought that we needed to develop that theme a little bit more yet again this week. And so we're not really in Matthew's Gospel. In fact, I would invite you to turn to 1 Peter to begin with this morning as we turn into our Bibles. But we're asking the question, is it really worth it? We imagine that question from John the Baptist as the sword came down upon his neck, where he had had only about one year of public ministry intersecting with our Lord's ministry for about six months, recognizing that the Messiah for which he had prepared the way, John the Baptist had prepared the way, Was within walking distance, and yet he let the sword fall. As an antagonistic king and queen, with quotes around them, took the life of this great preacher. Is it really worth it? Out of just my musings and meditations on that passage and the message we had last week, my concern is uh, to have my own heart prepared to stand for Christ no matter what, and to help prepare our church to overcome complacency, which naturally settles in. Um, we are very wealthy. We are very comfortable, are we not? We would not even sit on plywood benches this morning, would we? Not very cheerfully. Not as long as OPV preaches anyway. And you just realize how comfortable we've become With the religious freedoms that we enjoy and with the average daily ebb and flow of the openness of our faith, our property here. But if times change, are we ready? We recognize that God's people around the world from the very first century have suffered for Christ. John the Baptist becoming essentially the first recorded martyr of the New Testament. In Acts chapter 6, we have Stephen, the first recorded martyr for Christ. Following the resurrection of Christ, he would be the first church martyr. Peter gave instruction in his book to those who had been scattered by this persecution. You see, at first, the government of Rome was tolerant of Christianity. And in fact, Judaism had been embedded in the system, and Rome had even used the religious leaders of Judaism to help control the people. That's why the high priest, Caiaphas, and those kinds of officials, the Sanhedrin, were actually involved in the prosecution and, and crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. But by 70 AD, all of that changed. In fact, Rome came through and with the edge of the sword, slaughtered over 1.1 million Jews. That was the time when they destroyed the temple as well. Everything changed, and that would have marked the the era of the catacombs then, which is reflective of the picture on the screen this morning. And so Peter is writing in around uh, 60 AD, in that range, somewhere there, And uh, it's not long before persecution takes place. No doubt the winds of adversity were beginning to blow strongly. And in fact, they had disrupted communities and there was uh, direct persecution taking place. Here's what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised. 1 Peter 4.12 And this is also what Peter would write to those believers in China this morning. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So for us in America, fiery trial would be very upsetting and it would be very strange to us. For many of our brothers and sisters around the world today, it is the norm. But rejoice, there's your attitude in suffering, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. There's a contrast. Verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Wow. Is that an incredible passage of Scripture written to people who had lost everything and were scattered across the country? I think that's a passage of Scripture that will grow in its significance to we believers in the United States in the not-too-distant future. I thought this morning that it would be good for us to take just a minute and to turn to Romans chapter 13. This is a topical message. Uh, We will uh, be bouncing around a little bit um, as we try to just pursue this theme of preparing for persecution, asking ourselves, is it really worth it uh, yet again this Sunday? Lord willing, we'll move on next week. Uh, In Romans chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is writing uh, to the believers at Rome who lived in the middle of a very pagan, corrupt, secular culture. Was not popular to be a Christian. It was an oppressive government. Taxation was upwards of 40% of one's income. And here's what the Apostle Paul wrote I thought it would be good for us uh, to make sure that as believers in Christ and as a church, we make sure that we understand, number one, today, the biblical mandate for government. Now, let me say this. I really don't want this message to be negative. It's easy to be naysayers. It's easy to think that the sky is always falling. And it is, it is easy to, to point out all of the uh, negative things that are happening around the country. I, I don't preach this message in, with that spirit. I think we need to be realistic But I don't want it to be negative or to leave church this morning and feel like, wow, that was encouraging. I'm really glad I was there. I do want you to be encouraged, but I want us to be biblically informed as to how we are to think, should the Lord allow us to have to, according to his will, according to Peter, first Peter four, to have to suffer persecution So I don't want this sermon to be negative. I do want it to be encouraging. I also want to acknowledge that not all persecution for our faith or for following Christ, and that's the kind of persecution I'm talking about. Peter even referenced, you know, don't get in trouble for murder or meddling, only for the cause of Christ. We're to be upstanding citizens. Um... I, I recognize that it is not only governments that oppress, but that's what makes the headlines particularly today, and that's a little bit, I think, the, the mindset of the church today is that our own government is turning against Christ and crosses and the Bible and freedom of religion and the church, and that's kind of the sense, and kind of an undercurrent sense that maybe we feel. So I thought in light of that sense, um, we should quickly review Paul's instruction about our attitude towards government. And it's given as a mandate. This is how you are to think of government. Universal principles from the Apostle Paul on how to think about your government. Whether you're in Beijing or whether you're in Shenandoah Junction. Let's read what Paul says in Romans 13. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And he's talking about Nero here, people. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to do good, excuse me, for rulers, verse 3, are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? And then do what is good and you will receive His approval. For He is God's servant for your good. That's the standard. The middle of verse 4, "...but if you do wrong, be afraid, for He does not bear the sword in vain. For He is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience." For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. That is an interesting passage of Scripture. I think particularly as you understand the cultural context in which it was written and how it applies to us today. Let's rattle off a list of principles that we get from this, and let's make sure we we begin with a Christian mindset out of Paul's biblical mandate for government. First of all, you can see clearly in this passage, can't you? That the Christian is to live in submission to his government. The Christian is to live in submission to the government. Paul begins with that. Let every person be subject. You are to do what your government asks you to do. That's the overriding principle there. He says it again in verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection. Secondly, clearly in this passage, we are to understand that it is God who sovereignly appoints governments over people. God sovereignly appoints governments over people. Let's take just a minute and look up those two verses in Proverbs. There are more, um, but these two are uh, somewhat familiar, perhaps. But a reminder uh, from Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 15. Notice what it says. Proverbs 8, 15. By me, kings reign. Now, particularly in the passage, it is the personification of wisdom that's being talked about here. So it is with wisdom but ultimately, God is our wisdom. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles all uh, and nobles all who govern justly. And the ESV uh, translates it all who govern justly. I notice that in many Hebrew manuscripts, it is translated govern the earth. There's evidently a debate in the Hebrew translation there. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. That is absolutely clear. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like a stream of water. He turns it wherever he will. Listen, God is sovereign over kingdoms. God is sovereign over nations. Sovereign means absolute control and rule. There is no governor, there is no mayor, there is no president, there is no king who is there by their own design. God is at work unfolding his plan. We could talk more about that, but that is a basic concept That the church and believers must understand that God is sovereign over the appointment of kings. Thirdly, government is God's servant. We're back in Romans 13. Government is God's servant for good. So in God's design, a government, a king, is to implement justice. We also know from other passages of Scripture that God hates injustice. We also recognize, and this is actually an argument for the very existence of God, that we have a conscience, and in our conscience embedded is, is an innate understanding that there is a right and a wrong, and when injustice takes place, we really feel violated. Injustice is enraging. God is enraged by injustice. He allows it. He uses it for his own end. And he allows injustice to take place through corrupt kings that he has allowed to be appointed. For his own purposes. But the government is God's servant for good. The government also bears the sword of punishment. Governments have a right to bear arms. They have a right... To execute, they have a right to enforce the law. In fact, without justice and without a legal system, there is anarchy. And in anarchy, there is nothing but the uh, amplification of sin and the disastrous results of sin as everyone does what is right in their own eyes. It's a disaster. It's burning and pillaging that's why when we watch the news and, and we hear of a mayor who has told her police force to stand down and let them burn down parts of her city, there is something inside of us that says, What are you doing? Because God has placed them with a sword to enforce the law. And when they don't, there is something broken about that. We are to understand that about government. Finally, I want you to see that as citizens, we are to serve the government. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Okay? Bad people should fear the government. Good people should not have to fear their government. That's why we teach our children that the policeman is our friend. We don't run from him. I recognize that there are all kinds of abuses at all kinds of levels. But law enforcement is our friend. The mayor is our friend. The city council is our friend. We're honest people. And we expect those kinds of relationships. We don't want to be blindsided by injustice or the undermining of righteous free living. He says in verse 4, "For He is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. Verse 5, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of your conscience. Okay, Don't violate your conscience in this matter. For because of this, you pay taxes, you pay what is owed, revenue to whom, and then you respect those to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. We are to serve with respect our government. I thought it was important for us as we enter into this message to have this foundation, this understanding. That is the biblical mandate. That's the biblical teaching of a proper view of government. Now, that brings then us to the point of all kinds of questions. Okay, what if our government has an open forum... And they want to allow restrooms to be open for all kinds of perversion and different people who are involved in all kinds of perverse lifestyle. And we as citizens go and then our government doesn't want to hear and they actually mock us publicly, which they did. I stood and watched our own people be mocked publicly as they stood up against the SOGI issues in our own community just a few weeks ago. And it just generates all kinds of questions What do you do? How do you live inside this? What if the government is corrupt? What if the government is, what if injustice is prevailing? When, when do we take up arms and when do we fire off powder? We know that as Americans, right? When we see the whites of their eyes, that's when you do it. And as patriotic Americans, it just stirs up in us those kinds of feelings. I'm warning you that the Bible doesn't give us permission to do that, ever. Well, let's look at three biblical models, and these are familiar to us. Um, the first one is, is in Exodus chapter 1, and we're going to have to just kind of skim through it. You have the references on your notes there, and I think it would be good and valuable for you to read these stories in their entirety, especially if you're not real familiar with them. What we have here is the beginning of the story of the life of Moses, and we have these two precious midwives. Uh, This is verse 15 of chapter 1 of Exodus. And the king of Egypt, who was the Pharaoh, said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, and I have been lobbying for people in our church to name their baby girls these names, but no one has yet. These are beautiful, wonderful ladies who should be elevated and lifted up and named after. They were midwives. Pharaoh has figured out that something is up and there's too many of these Hebrews and he's worried about rebellion and he, he generated by a sinful, wicked heart and insight, no doubt, from the pit of hell. He decides that these midwives and he gives them this rule, the rule that he gives them straight from the government is kill all the baby boys. He tells the Hebrew midwives when you're attending these Israelites and a boy is coming out, you make sure that you drop them down on the rocks. Or you make sure that you, you know, slip the back of their spinal cord or whatever. You make sure that baby doesn't live. It's interesting in the story, we'll not take time to read it, but their response is in verse... Uh, 17, it says that they feared God and they did not do as the king. They directly disobeyed the mandate. Now, some people like to point at this passage and say that they lied. I don't think they lied. I think they just didn't show up on time. It says, well, the, the Israelite women are healthy and strong and they have their babies in a hurry and we just don't get there in time. And so once the baby's born, then they wouldn't kill it. And they directly, out of a fear of God, as these three, these are three, by the way, Roman numeral two, three biblical models, three biblical models of insubordination. Letter A is concerning the sanctity of human life. Letter A, concerning the sanctity of human life. The rule, number one, was to kill all babies. That was the rule from the king. The response of the midwives was they feared God, so they directly did not do what they were told. The reaction was, what the response of the king was in verse 18, is that they were called before the king. And he scolds them. What is going on here? That's when they say, oh, they're too fast for us. I don't think they were lying directly. I think they were fudging a little bit in the sense, and I think they, were, they just purposely didn't show up on time. And I do believe that God gave the Israelite women great strength and health in delivering babies and that they did have babies as easily as anyone could have a baby. And I think that happened. God blessed them that way. And in fact, it was his plan for them to multiply Notice that the result is, and it's precious, you take time to read it later, chapter verses 19 to 21. These evidently, I love this part of the story, these ladies evidently did not have their own children as they served as midwives. I kind of read that between the lines. And God gave them children of their own. Women who loved children and who served mommies and took care of babies. And then they finally had a day when God blessed them out of their obedience. Now, in their situation, they were blessed because of their insubordination. We have a second case. We have multiple cases in Scripture. We're just touching down on a couple. Letter B is concerning freedom of religion. And this is perhaps one of the most absolute familiar stories in all the Bible. It's Daniel chapter 6. However, I am learning back in my office as I meet with people throughout the week. They look at me and they say, I don't know the stories of the Bible. Because we have ever increasingly a population of people, this is not a criticism to you if you're here, who have not grown up in Sunday school. Here's a reason why you ought to have your kids in Sunday school every week, is so they're learning the stories of the Bible. You ought to be reading to them at bedtime. Get yourself a good Bible story book. Know the stories of the Bible. Remember the great things of old that God has done. It's a great way to teach the character of God to your children is by just reminding them of these familiar stories. You know this story very well. This is concerning freedom of religion in Daniel chapter 6. The rule, chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, was that they pray only to the king. So the satraps and and the assistants to the king were critical of Daniel. This is the story of Daniel. He is so upright... In his life, and he's so honored by the king and God is blessing him in his righteousness that his counterparts are jealous, so they convince King Darius to make up a, a bogus law that he be God for a month, and that only, you could, only the citizenry could pray only to King Darius for 30 days. They did this because it says in the passage they knew the only way they could find fault with Daniel is in his surrender to God and in his commitment to his God. He was so disciplined, they knew his pattern. So the rule was, pray only to the king for 30 days. Notice the response in verse 10 of chapter 6. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber toward Jerusalem, he got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and he gave thanks to God as he had done previously. He didn't change his routine one bit. Now, don't you think he could have left the shutters closed? Just help yourself out, buddy. I think that Daniel didn't care. And I think that Daniel believed that there was something Less than integrous about his own life and his walk with God, should he do it behind closed shutter doors? And he opened up the doors and he openly prayed. And he exercised a freedom of religion that had been removed openly, knowing that he would be arrested and prosecuted for it. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. Daniel's response was to go about his normal routine of public prayer. The reaction was he receives the verdict of the death penalty. Verse 16, he gets the death penalty. The result, once again, is that God miraculously spares his life. Our third incident is is concerning the freedom of speech. The freedom of speech. It's Acts chapter 4, and you're going to have to read that one on your own. And this one was not by law, but it was just by the, the fact that the high priest was annoyed by the preaching of the disciples. They get put in jail. They keep on preaching, even though they've been told not to preach. And they look at the officials and they say... We cannot help but speak of the things we have heard and seen about Jesus Christ. Later, they get rearrested because of it. And in chapter 5, verse 29, you need to write that down. Acts 5, 29 is that classic principle that we'll review in just a moment in conclusion that we must obey God rather than man. That is probably the clearest guiding principle for believers everywhere. If God has spoken to the point... We obey God regardless of what men say or do. Turn to Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, will you? And we conclude with a running list that I'll probably not get through. Here's the biblical mindset for being a courageous Christian. right, so here's what we've tried to do is to just bump in. This is a huge topic. We've tried to lay a foundation of understanding what is the mandate concerning the Christian's attitude towards government. All right? Then we took just a minute and we've explored in our mind the fact that though God's people were serving under governments, they disobeyed the government. The point is that they refused to ever allow the government to turn them away from their commitment to God they they protected the sanctity of human life they lived out their religious freedom the disciples continued to exercise freedom of speech by the way that speech is what got john's head removed right he was speaking out in condemnation against the against herod tetrarch's unlawful marriage with his sister-in-law his brother Philip's wife. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, give us tremendous guidance as well concerning our attitude. What I want to do is very quickly then list off a number of principles that have just come to my mind as I've been meditating and pondering this. Titus chapter 3 fits with Romans 13 a little bit. Listen, look at what Titus is receiving instruction from Paul. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Why? Because we also used to be foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, envy, hated by others and hating one another. We used to be pagans just like they are. Sinners sin. Sinful leaders sin. As believers in Christ, be quiet about it. Principle number one that I'm preaching to myself today is that Christians must be, a, must be model citizens. We must be model citizens. We must guard against caustic negative speech. Now, I have said publicly not too long ago from this pulpit, shame on our president. I think I have say that, with a righteous attitude. But we need to be careful. We need to be careful as we understand that someone who does not know God is not going to make godly decisions. And so we need to pray for them as Paul taught us in 1 Timothy. We need to show respect to these rulers and authorities and and, and these uh, 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 rulers who are over us and these authorities that have power over us Letter B, we must live out the overriding law of love, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, who's my neighbor, Lord? Oh, you want to go there? <laughs> it's everybody. Thirdly, we are citizens, first and foremost, of heaven. That is to comfort us. And that is a word to patriots who want to burn powder. Oh, to be as zealous for my heavenly city as I am my earthly city. There's something wrong with a Christian who would rather live on this earth than live in heaven. We have no biblical model of violence or violent rebellion. That line is a little too short for violence. Sorry about that. Letter D, we have no biblical model for violence or violent rebellion against government. You can see my parenthetical thought there. I think there is a difference between... Um, criminal, criminal violence and persecution for the cause of Christ. So if somebody is breaking into your house as a criminal for a random act of violence or even a planned act of violence, but it has nothing to do with your faith, you take them out. And you protect your family. If they come to your house to get you for the cause of Christ, you do not take them out. You stand and you prophesy profess Christ publicly as they take you away letter E we always obey God rather than men that is Acts five twenty nine. letter F we find rest in the sovereignty of God God is sovereign over what happens to us we are to model our suffering after Christ that's that 1 Peter 4 passage that we opened up with as well by the way we are to model our suffering after Christ. Add 1 Peter 4, that passage we opened up with, 1 Peter 4, 12-19. through 19. We are just one breath away from the presence of Christ. You know, I think that this is uh, a very comforting truth. You know, many believers have been burned at the stake. Had their heads cut off, been stretched to death, been sawn asunder. Read it in Hebrews 11. Been wrapped up in fresh... Deer hides and then thrown before wild animals and hyenas and lions and chewed and gnawed to death. And they're miserable for a short time. And we do not want to be miserable for a short time. We're very comfort oriented. I love hot showers, soft bedroom slippers, and so forth. But listen to me. That quickly you'll be in the presence of your Lord and Savior. Savior. So who cares? Who cares? And um, I think that's why, as we continue, though we have every right to engage enthusiastically in the legislative process and make change as we can make change, let's realize that these are days to walk with and grow in our relationship with Christ, to memorize scripture and hymns, and to put down deep roots of non-negotiable biblical convictions. One of the greatest things you can do is know your Bible and know your hymnal so that when you are alone and persecuted, that the scriptures can refresh you, that the spirit of God can renew you, and he will at just the right time.